Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Loyola Street Medicine podcast. My name is Jen Krupa, and I'm a medical student at the Stritch School of Medicine and the Research and Education Chair for the Stritch Homelessness Outreach Coalition. Today, we are joined by Dr. William Tepper, aka Dr. Bill, emergency medicine specialist and founder of Portland Street Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Jennifer. Awesome. So today, our topic of discussion is wound care among the homeless population. We're going to cover some of the fundamentals for treating wounds, common injuries, and barriers to care for this population. Before we get started, Dr. Tepper, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do with Portland Street Medicine? Sure. I am an emergency physician, as you stated. However, we retired from that in 2017, you know, financially in good shape, but also knowing that I don't do boredom very well. So I wanted to add to my professional career. And uh, I just didn't really want to do urgent care. I'd done academics, really wasn't particularly interested in consulting to the business world. And my true interest was in behavioral health, you know, the suffering that I would see in my career in emergency medicine. So I stumbled upon a concept called street medicine. I knew nothing about it, but stumbling upon it, I had the opportunity to go to the symposium that year, which was held in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I was completely blown away by the presentations and the work that was being done. So I decided to to join the Portland Street Medicine team. However, there was none. So um, I and three friends with pretty similar interests decided to embark on this program. And we did our first series of rounds early 2018. And when I say rounds, what I mean is my Subaru, a box of tangerines and first aid supplies from the dollar store. But as many of your audience members know, especially folks from Loyola, the work is less about the curing of disease and more about relationships and kind of improving the quality of people's lives. So yeah, we got this going in 2018 and made a decision really early up front. There wasn't a ton of interest from other federally qualified health centers, local clinics, government agencies in the work we were doing. So we chose to go independent, meaning we were going to be a volunteer team without a, an affiliation, meaning a hospital affiliation or a governmental clinic affiliation. And that's good and bad. It's good in that we are um, free to do the work that we feel is necessary, but it's bad in that we have to, we're doing everything ourselves. So it's a lot of fun creating a, a business, a nonprofit business. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. I like that you stress yep. the importance of building relationships. I feel like that yep. is something that uh, is mirrored here at Loyola too. I just want to dive right in. What would you say are some wound care fundamentals you feel are important for students and or street medicine providers to know before caring for someone who's unsheltered and dealing with a chronic wound? Fundamentals. Number one, the pathology and treatment that you might be witness to in a traditional healthcare setting is not always effective on the streets. So what does that mean? That means having to be flexible and willing to try different therapies and strategies, and also keeping an open ear to strategies that are working for people on the streets. They are their own experts. And so they, by definition, are kind of running their own science experiments by trying new things. And if we don't listen to what works for them, then we're really not that much better than a um, traditional healthcare setting. So yeah, flexibility. Um, number two, the, the ba- you know always start with the fundamentals. When dealing with a wound or an infection, that's kind of 
not really improving. The fundamentals meaning keep it clean, keep it moist, keep it covered. So keep it clean, that's water. Ideally not pond water, but tap water is fine. Bottled water, saline, sure. So that's the keep it clean is water, soap and water, ideally. Keep it moist is the, I think we, the biggest barrier we find to healing is a dry wound. So it's got a scab at the base and it's just not a really healing environment. So keeping it moist is usually with an agent that has some petroleum jelly in it. Triple antibiotic ointment is an example. Um, the honey products don't have that, but they're they are equally as effective. Um, and then keeping it covered, not necessarily sealed, but um, uh, covered from any further contamination, just promote a, a healthy healing environment. So um, so that's the, the basics. And with that and an ongoing relationship, meaning some support for folks to get the, the water they need on a regular routine basis, that, that that's, you'll heal about 95% of your wounds. That's super interesting. I like how you laid that out uh, with the steps there. Going off of that, are there any specific wound care supplies you would recommend having on hand? Yeah, I mean, it's it's neat because we do we both do the care as a team, but we also train our houses folks to do their own wound care teams. The first thing we um, really um, emphasize is setting yourself up for success. And so what does that mean? That means kind of thinking through First of all, taking a deep breath and I'm um, getting your PPE in order, but then I'm um, thinking through what you might need to help with get this wound cleaned up. And so that usually takes the form of some sort of barrier or towel or even a newspaper underneath to, to put things on and then um, a trash bag or a biohazard bag. Second of all, almost everything is going to need some cleansing. So an irrigant, whether that's tap water or bottled water um, or saline. Thirdly, again, a moistening agent to have ready to go. We typically use triple antibiotic ointment. It just seems to be the most available. And then a pad to kind of cover the wound. And that's going to typically take the form of a non-inherent or non-woven gauze. They, they just come off easier. And then finally, something to secure the, the bandaging. And that can be tape. Doesn't really stick very well. Um, or a, a, a wrap. And we're, we're commonly using um, sports tape. But that can be a little constricting, so you just have to be really careful with that. So that's the kind of fundamental supplies across the board. I will say um, almost everything can be obtained very cheaply. There is one agent that I would recommend having, which is not going to be cheap. So ho hopefully you get it donated. Would be an antimicrobial type dressing. So lots of wounds look inflamed or infected, but aren't quite ready for antibiotic treatment. So this is where the antimicrobial dressings come in handy, and they're typically impregnated with silver. So there are many varieties of these agents, but the, the ones with silver are probably the most common. And they can come in the form of a, a cream or a, an actual impregnated gauze. Definitely worth noting for our team at the CTA Blue Line. Um, in your experience, what is the most common injury you see working with this population? And have you found any creative solutions for managing wound care on the streets that have been successful? Yeah, I mean, we, we as alluded to, we do see a lot of non-healing sores on the legs, and these are typically in younger people, often post-minor injury. They're not diabetic. They don't have peripheral vascular disease. So it's a little bit of a mystery why these things are happening and not healing. From what we can tell, it's it's a combination of a, a few things, inattention to one's body. Um, priorities are not always 
to raise your legs during the day when you have to go out and can for your for your food. So there are issues that are much bigger than a first aid team can address. Secondly, with regard to those non-healing sores, we do find a fair number of people tend to over-surveil their wounds, meaning they're looking at them regularly, they're cleaning them, overly cleaning them, and kind of destroying the, the new tissues that are being um, laid down. So we, we typically have a conversation with somebody about what the best routine is going to be for them. And some people we recommend not looking at your wound for three days, kind of depending on the situation. Why are they over-surveilling? Various reasons. You know, you don't have to be houseless to get nervous and anxious about your body not doing the right thing. And then mental health issues obviously kind of feed into that. Uh, methamphetamine is also um, known to cause um, perseveration or OCD type behavior. So it's certainly um, uh, an issue for some people, but not not everybody. With regard to other wounds besides these non-healing sores, we see a fair amount of smaller sores, some version of folliculitis, meaning these smaller red bumps, they kind of sore and they're diffuse and they occur where hair grows. So it's not the typical folliculitis that we commonly think of, but it's likely we think it's caused by MRSA or methyl-resistant staph aureus. So with these folks, even though each individual sore may not look like that big of a deal in combination, the, the 10 to 20 of them, we do find that short course of, like seven-day course of anti-staph antibiotics can be helpful. So that's, that's where we come in as a medical team. And then finally, uh, maybe not the most common, but really the most worrisome thing we've been seeing in terms of injuries is, are the cold weather injuries. We see a lot of frostbite and limb loss from um, our you know relatively mild winter. Uh, we might have a week or two below, below freezing, but we're almost always above freezing in the 40 degree range and but wet and cold. And so it's unforgivable to allow this much limb loss in our city and our country. In those situations, what has been your solution for helping people with, with frostbite injuries? Yeah, I mean, we're usually seeing them days, maybe weeks after the initial injury. So we're, we're usually less involved with the rewarming and sort of the immediate management. We, we visit people usually when they're discharged from hospital or, you know, when it's finally so bad that they finally reach out to us. So our approaches are mostly about prevention. So, you know, stay in contact with people who are vulnerable. Um, uh, hand warmers to everybody is so basic. It's almost silly to talk about, but hand warmers, conversations about how to maintain warmth in your home when your home is a piece of fabric and your warmth is a, a fire from a hand sanitizer. So those conversations are really important to have. Again, there's until people are actually sheltered, um, there will be people living in tents uh, with fires inside of them. So just have to be honest about that and have those conversations. Really early recognition for those who've had um, cold-related re injury um, and they haven't had any tissue loss, just letting people know that it's really common for second injury to be worse than first. So kind of, again, conversation more than anything. There's cold weather injury that doesn't result in tissue loss, but it re results in well, sort, of, sort of neuropathic injury, microvascular injury. So we also like to support those folks. The condition has various names. Chill is one of them. 
but basically it's injury to the, to the capillaries and microvascular resulting in cold weather pain. So it's similar to Raynaud's, but a different origin. And in folks that we identify with this, there are meds that can be pretty helpful. So we try to get them on them, antihypertensives that for some reason help with this condition. That's super interesting. It sounds yeah. like conversations yeah. are, are a big part of what you guys do in all of your conversations and in your experience. What have you found to be uh, barriers to care that you've witnessed while working with Portland Street Medicine? And in your opinion, what, what can be done to help improve care? Yeah, there's, you could probably go through the whole hierarchy of the steps that it takes to get, say, for example, become a primary care patient somewhere. Things like actually leaving your site to go to the appointment, having your pets managed, you know, kind of working through some often difficult interpersonal relationships, the necessity to have an ID card. In Oregon, it's pretty easy to get signed up for Medicaid, so that's typically not a barrier. Again, that hierarchy, kind of like the 20 things it takes to actually get into primary care, we could talk about. But I I almost think those are solutions that can, or there can be easy solutions to those. So hopefully that will happen. But the biggest, I think, that we witness is people's adverse experiences in healthcare systems. That's so often why people are not interested in going to the clinic, the ER, the urgent care. So that often takes the form of being treated poorly, mismanaged with regard to their substance use disorder. Just the simple like nonverbal um, glances that people receive appearing homeless. So what can we do about that? We, we can be the first positive experience with healthcare that people have. And as everybody knows, you know, first impressions mean a lot. We like to be a, a positive um, experience for people on the streets. So that, that happens on the streets. That happens in their homes. It happens, you know, when people are usually feeling well. They're not in crisis. They're not, they're, they're not transported across the city in restraints. And, and again, initial positive healthcare experience. And then when it is time to go into an indoor type setting, helping people through that, that can be through phone call, that can be actual physical chaperoning, if you want to call it that. So we're, we're really trying to rewrite the narrative for people one by one. Do you find that you get a lot of resistance for that continued care? Not at all. I mean, there, there's some people who are really just really not interested in what, we, what we're providing. But no, for the most part, that's probably the single most sigh of relief when we work with people who've had, they know they need healthcare, they've had terrible experiences. And when we say, yeah, we can, we can walk with you. That's incredibly moving. And it sounds like your team can be that missing piece for some people getting the care they need. Switching gears a little bit, I understand that in the Chicagoland area, there has been an increased prevalence in xylosine-induced wounds or skin ulcers. Has there been a similar trend in Portland? And have you seen any of these wounds that may be due to the xylosine? You know, I, I can't believe we were spared completely, but we have had some point-of-care testing and some clinics offering testing. And anecdotally, occasionally hear from a person in an inpatient setting, ICU setting, about a, a horrible wound that was probably xylosine. But for the most part, we're we're in pretty good shape. We're not really seeing it in our work. We're not seeing the horrific, necrotizing, kind of fleshing type sores. 
Um, that said, we do find an increased mentioning of, hey, Doc, I've, I've got these sores and I never had them before. And one of them turned a little bit black and they're, you know, they're smaller. They're not really, they're just more like, what is this? So we don't know that if it's xylazine, but it's certainly a, a, a change in the wound behavior that might be the first xylazine um, manifestation. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I just wanted to close with one last question, and that is what advice do you have for medical students interested in street medicine? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because, well, don't wait until you're 58 to get involved. That's when I got involved. Not, I mean, that's a great time to, to pick up a new um, discipline, but um, the work is so much about longevity and, you know, presence. And um, the sooner that you can get involved in your community and being that presence, the, the, the more benefit it will do to the community and it'll the, the more impact you can have in this. There are different versions of street medicine through um, student-run groups, through healthcare clinics, through and, and the needs are so different in different cities, depending on if you're going to be doing shelter-based care or street-based care. But get to know what's going on in your town. And of course, if you're two years into it and you're really, this is not my thing, that's okay. Just because you, in your head, commit to this lifelong practice, it's better to back off if it's not going well. So know that you're you're not really signing yourself for a lifelong commitment. And finally, I, I think it's, we call it street medicine, which is a great term, but it, street medicine is a part of inclusion health. So the lessons learned from caring for people in the streets can be extrapolated to other either impoverished groups or even, you know, people with resource. When working in street medicine, I like to think of how this can um, impact folks in other um, situations. So you're not limited to walking the streets when you get involved in the world of street medicine. It's about improving healthcare systems. I 100% agree. It's really great to hear your perspective on this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, we really appreciate your expertise on this topic and look forward to working with you again in the future. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much.